I want you to consider with me this morning the deity of Christ. It is a story without beginning. What a story. The story of Jesus doesn't start once upon a time in Bethlehem. But once when there was no time when only God was. Not once upon a time, but once when there was no time or space. Once when only God was. Here, the story of Jesus has its beginning. There is no beginning. There is eternal trinity, the mystery. There is supreme majesty. And there is personal equality. The Apostle Paul in the text points us to the mystery of the eternal trinity when he says that God the Son, Jesus Christ, was subsisting in God's form, that is, he is the supreme being, and yet he was equal with God. That is, he was equal with God the Father, but he was not God the Father, but he was equal with the Father. So you have the supreme being who is not God the Father, but equal with the Father. And that introduces us to the mystery of the eternal trinity. So the story of Jesus and his deity is on the foundation of the eternal mystery of the Trinity. But secondly, his deity is a story of supreme majesty. It says that he, God the Son, Jesus Christ, was subsisting, living, existing in God's form with the majesty of the supreme being, the creator of all things. And then he also says that he was equal with the Father. There is a personal equality between God the Father and God the Son, so that God the Son, Paul says, did not consider equality with God, that is the Father, as robbery. And so you have eternal trinity, supreme majesty, and personal equality. And that's what I want to consider with you this morning from the text. The deity of Christ presented with three things. Trinity, majesty, and equality. Trinity, majesty, and equality. First of all, the deity of Christ involves trinity, eternal trinity, eternal life of God the Son. John says it, in the beginning, 1, 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That is, the Word is not, God the Word is not God the Father. And the Word was God. That is, God the Word is the supreme being. This one, the Word, God the Son, was in the beginning with God. His story does not begin in time. Before time was, when only God was. 
before creation was, when there was no physical cosmos, when there was no space-time continuum, when there was no material and energy, when only God was. God the Son was. God the Father was. God the Holy Spirit was. Eternal life. John also says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, and the life, that is the life of the, the life, God the Son, was manifested. How was he manifested? When he became human. And we have seen and declare, bear witness, and declare to you the life, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. There is a person, God the Son, a living, divine person who was with God the Father, who was in the beginning, and who is the supreme being. God the Father was, God the Son was, God the Spirit was, when only God was. And God the Son was with the Father, living, eternal life, unoriginated, divine, triune life. Jesus, when he was here, the person, God the Son, incarnate, remembered and was aware. He never forgot his experience of eternal life before the foundation of the world with his father. And he spoke about it to his father in prayer. In John 17, 5, he said, Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory that I had with you before the world was, before anything was created, when only God was, God the Son was, and he was with God the Father, and with God the Father he had glory. And even when he was incarnate here on earth, he remembers that glory that he had before the world was with God the Father. And furthermore, while he's speaking to the Father again in that same prayer, in verse 24 of John 17, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which you have given me for because you loved me when? Before the foundation of the world. Not only was God the Son with God the Father, God the Son and God the Father, both persons are the one and the same and only supreme being, great mystery, the mystery of the Trinity. God the Father is not the same person as God the Son. God the Son is a different person from God the Father. And God the Father and God the Son experience love. And there was love 
The Father loves the Son before the foundation of the world. And the Son never forgets that love. The Father loves the Son before the foundation of the world. And in that love, God, the supreme being, is not lonely because he's not one person. He's three persons. And those three persons have love. And in that love, they feel the affection of joy and delight. And John Flavel, the Puritan, in his works, volume 1, verses, pages 33 and 34, expresses his understanding of this experience of Christ before the foundation of the world when only God was. He says, quote, These delights of the Father and the Son in one another knew not a moment's interruption or diminution. There's a big Puritan word for reduction. So, these delights, the delights of the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that they have in one another were not interrupted, no. And they were never diminished or reduced, no. And he says, quote, Thus did these great and glorious persons fully let forth their fullest pleasure and delight each into the heart of the other. One in another, entertaining themselves with delights and pleasures ineffable. That is, unspeakable. Ineffable and inconceivable. Then he says, hence, or therefore, we observe doctrine. That the condition and state of Jesus Christ before his incarnation was a state of the highest and most unspeakable delight and pleasure in the enjoyment of his father. He was rich. He had riches of which we cannot conceive. The riches of deity. The riches of divine interpersonal love and all of the joy and delight and blessedness of that love. The deity of Christ begins, if that's my presentation of it begins, it has no beginning. But my presentation of it begins with the mystery of the eternal Trinity. He's not the Father, but he's equal with the Father, and yet he is the supreme being, and these persons have love and delight and blessedness when only God was. So God didn't create because he was lonely. Of his own will, they are and will create, were created. He did it to display his glory. 
wasn't lacking in love. He wasn't lacking in joy. He wasn't lacking in personal communion that was totally blessed. So that's the first thing. Eternal Trinity. Consider with me, secondly, supreme majesty. And the supreme majesty connected with the deity of Christ is unfolded by the Apostle Paul in these words. He says that Christ was existing in God's form. And the Greek word is morphe, morphe theu, God's form. We get uh, morphing from it. Huh? Now in the New Testament, this word morphe only occurs here and in Mark 16.12 where the scripture reads that he was manifested to them in another morphe or another form. And when the resurrected Christ was manifested to them in another form, they didn't recognize him. So when it says that he appeared in another morphe, another form, he still had every human attribute. He still appeared as a man. He didn't appear as a lion or some other animal. He had a different set of the distinguishing features that enable us to differentiate one human being from another. Now, all human beings, we all have the same human attributes, but we recognize a difference. We've got three different human beings in this room right now. So we have Ginger's form, Adam's form, and GGN's form. And I don't know that it would be edifying. It might be funny, but it might not be edifying for me to describe the differences. You see me and you see Adam. You're not going to confuse us with one another for different reasons. Could you tell all the reasons why you recognize Adam when you see him and you recognize me when you see me and you don't think you don't confuse me with Adam and you recognize him every time you see him, even though he may age a little, even though he may put off or put on a little bit of weight, and you notice that, you know that he's the same person. Because there are certain distinguishing features that mark him as an individual that enable you to recognize him, and that is the distinctiveness of his form. So how do you apply that idea to God? So the form of God, signifies the distinguishing features of God, and in particular, of God the Creator, by which you recognize Him. And the scripture identifies or highlights several distinguishing features of God's form. And God, the Creator, is always without a body. He is the supreme spirit. And because he is incorporeal and non-material, he is invisible, immortal, invisible, God only wise. It doesn't make any sense to talk about visible if there's no such thing as light and there's no such thing as creation. But when you talk about light and creation 
and material things, then the form of God, the creator, is that he is incorporeal. He's not material. He doesn't have a material body. He is a spiritual being. The supreme being is a spiritual being who is invisible. That's one of his distinguishing traits. Furthermore, he is invulnerable. God, we read, cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no man. When the creator makes his creatures, angels and men, and they fall into sin, and the devil tempts men to sin, he can't tempt God. God is not vulnerable to decay. He's not vulnerable to death. He is immortal, invisible, God only wise. He is invulnerable to temptation and harm in a fallen world. He is also celestial. Solomon's prayer, he said, here in heaven your dwelling place. Well, if only God was, there was no heaven because God created heaven. But when God creates heaven, his special presence, God's everywhere, but his dwelling place, his special presence is in heaven. The special presence of the supreme being throughout all time is in heaven. He is a celestial supreme being in the sense that his special presence is in the heaven that he created. Furthermore, he is royal or regal. He sits on the throne in heaven, reigning over all that he made. He reigns over all creation. He reigns over all the creatures of heaven and of all the creatures of earth. He sits enthroned in supreme majesty and authority, reigning in glory. So he is the creator and preserver and ruler of the universe that he made. The sovereign God. So in his form, he is invisible because he is incorporeal. He is invulnerable. He, he cannot be tempted. He cannot decay. He's not subject to death. He's immortal. He is celestial. His, though he is present with his whole being at every point in space, at every moment in time, in his special presence permanently, his permanent special presence is in heaven. He is regal. He sits enthroned in glory, reigning over all creation and all his creatures. And he is unapproachable, immortal, invisible, dwelling in light, unapproachable. I mean, that makes no sense if he didn't create light. But when he created light, he robed himself in light so bright, so blinding as to be lethal to mortals, unapproachable. He dwells in light, unapproachable. And so he is unapproachable. So the scripture features or highlights seven, five distinctive characteristics or features of God, the creator's form. He is invisible. 
He is invulnerable. He is celestial. He is regal. He is unapproachable. And these distinguishing features have always defined and always will define the form of God the creator as long as this creation lasts. He will always be invisible, invulnerable, celestial, regal, and unapproachable. And here's the point of Paul in the text. That God the Son, prior to his incarnation, lived, subsisted, existed in God the Creator, God the Father's form. God the Son was invisible. He had no human body or human soul. God the Son was invulnerable. He couldn't be tempted or harmed. God the Son was celestial. As we read in John 6.38, he said, I am come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. So Christ, God the Son, was invisible. He had no physical body. He was invulnerable. He was not able to be tempted. He was immortal with eternal divine life. He was celestial. His special presence was in heaven. But notice, he was regal, royal, enthroned with supreme majesty and authority in heaven reigning over all. Isaiah describes the glory of Christ before he came to earth, before he came down out of heaven. John 12 verse 41 tells us that this is true. And this is how we should read Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. John 12, 41 says, These Things said Isaiah because he saw his glory, the glory of God the Son before his incarnation. He saw his glory and he spoke of him. What did Isaiah say of God the Son, the Christ, before he came to earth, when he was with his special presence in heaven? Isaiah says, in the year Chapter 6, verse 1. That King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, regal, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him, God the Son, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts, God the Son. The whole earth is full of His glory, God the Son. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King. Jehovah of hosts, God the Son. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, the glory of God the Son. And he spoke of him, the Christ. 
Before he came here to earth, he was regal. He was celestial. He was invulnerable. He was invisible. And furthermore, he was unapproachable. Dwelling in light, lethal light so bright that it kills mortals. So that God said to Moses in Exodus 33:20, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. No man shall see me and live. Again, 1 Timothy 6.16, who only speaking of the Supreme Being has immortality dwelling in light unapproachable, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and power eternal. Amen. This is the supreme majesty of Christ. The supreme majesty of Christ. Who, subsisting in God's form, he created the universe. He created everything that is. And when he created the universe, he himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one supreme being, invisible, incorporeal, a spiritual being, invulnerable to temptation. And death, celestial, special presence, permanently in heaven. Regal, reigning in glory, unapproachable, dwelling in light, lethal to mortals. He was in the form of God. It's amazing, isn't it? Incredible. And yet, so we've looked at the eternal mystery of the Trinity, his deity consisting of eternal mystery, the Trinity, supreme majesty, the form of God. The final thing about the equality of, of the, the deity of Christ that the Apostle Paul features in the text is the personal equality that he has with God the Father. Apostle Paul says, who, subsisting in God's form, because he is and was invisible and vulnerable, unapproachable, regal, celestial, he didn't consider equality with God, that is God the Father, as robbery. But rather, he considered it as his own rightful possession. Now, I don't like giving Greek lessons and sermons, but you're going to get a little one this morning. And I hope you don't mind because if you read different translations and some modern translations, I hope you don't mind a five-minute Greek lesson this morning. I don't think it's even going to take five minutes, but I'm going to give you a little one this morning. And thankfully, I'm doing this uh, in such a context that I don't need the screen to prevent the tomatoes being thrown. 
Ginger and Adam do not have access to tomatoes at this time. So, I'm going to tell you the word he used. He said that Christ did not regard equality with God as harpagamos. That's a Greek word. And the King James, as some of you probably know, translates harpagmos as robbery or stealing. So God the Son didn't think that equality with the Father was stealing. What is stealing or robbery? Robbery or stealing is seizing something for yourself to which you have no right, but rather seizing something for yourself that is the rightful property of someone else. And when you're stealing, you're taking by force or by deception something that doesn't belong to you. It's wrongfully, thou shalt not steal. It's morally wrong. It's wrongfully making something your own possession that God made the possession of someone else. Now, part of the reason why people have problem with this text is because this Greek word is only found here in the New Testament. But this Greek word, harpagmas, comes from a family of words that are very similar in meaning. There, it, it has a, a uh, well, the, the, the right word is cognate, but it has a sister word, harpazo, which is a verb. And a sister noun, harpage, and a sister adjective, harpox. You see how those words all kind of sound the same? Harpogmas, harpozo, harpage, harpox. Well, they're all part of the same word family, or grammatically speaking, they are cognate words. Sleeping yet? Hope not. So the most similar word, the noun harpage, occurs three times. And it's translated extortion or ravening or spoiling of your goods. In every case, it describes the violation of the sanctity of private property. The idea of stealing or Plundering or robbing is evident and clear. The verb form is found 13 times. And the idea of harpazo, the verb, is to seize or grab or snatch. So you can understand why if you're robbing or stealing, you're seizing, grabbing, snatching, right? But it doesn't always, when it's used as a verb... Uh, mean the violation of the sanctity of private property. But you see how the idea is there of seizing or snatching. So it's the idea of a wolf catching sheep or snatching them, of the devil taking away the seed that was sown, or, and this is not sinful, the spirit snatching or grabbing up Philip when he took him up and moved him around. So it doesn't always imply violating the sanctity of private property as a verb. 
But the snatching idea goes very well with that use of this word family. And the adjective form, harpox, is found five times in the New Testament. And in every single time, it in some way describes violating the sanctity of private property. So, this word is only found once, and yet its word family is completely and totally consistent with the translation of the King James as robbery. This violating the sanctity of private property. This is the overwhelming impression created by this word family is that it means an action that violates the sanctity of private property. Robbing, stealing. Therefore, Paul says that Christ did not regard equality with the Father as acting in a way that violates the sanctity of private property. He didn't think equality with the Father was stealing or robbing. It seems evident, clear. Nevertheless, this plain meaning does not seem plausible to modern scholars. Forgive me the Greek lesson. Very important. The Greek dictionary, I won't even tell you the name unless you really want to know, makes an astonishing statement about this word. If you look it up in this particular Greek dictionary, it says, meaning, number one, robbery. And then I quote, which is next to impossible in Philippians 2.6, the state of being equal with God cannot be equated with the act of robbery, end quote. What? The state of being equal with God cannot be equated with an act of robbery, end quote. So you want to know why I took the time to give you a little Greek lesson? Because if you look up that word in a Greek dictionary, you're going to read something like that. It's going to lead you astray. Because, you see, in the thinking of some of these modern scholars, Paul cannot equate the state of being, equality with God, with an action, robbery, stealing. They think that equality with God has to be identified, not with an action noun, stealing robbery, but with a result noun, which would have a different ending in Greek. Now, I'm not going to tell you any more about that. And then they go speculate everywhere under the sun for meanings of this word that would be consistent with it being a result noun and not an action noun. So a thing to be grasped, a thing to be selfishly retained, a booty, a blah, 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 and on they go. And then they come up with the idea that what this actually says is that he never was God or that he gave up his deity when he came to earth. And that's where they go with all this nonsense. You're getting heated, you say. You bet your life. I'm not spitting on you, though. I am going to give you a Greek lesson. Because he is the supreme being. And he didn't give up his deity when he took to himself humanity. 
And you can speculate all you want. As a matter of fact, let's do a little speculating together. Let's just suppose, since the Greek dictionary tells us that you can't equate a state of being, equality with God, with an action robbing, stealing. Let's suppose, let's go down their street for a minute. Since everybody is uh, supposing and speculating, let's do a little speculating. Let's suppose that instead of what Paul wrote, robbing, stealing, he wrote the result noun. So what would it be? What would be the right translation? What results? Now, I wish you were all here, because if you're all here in front of me right now, I would actually ask you to answer this question. This, is not a, this would not be a rhetorical question. I would turn this, uh, this worship service into a classroom, and I would ask you to tell me, okay, if you're looking for a result, what results from robbing, stealing? What is the result of that? Okay, since Ginger and Adam are here, you can tell me. What do you think, when you, what is the result grammatically of robbing and stealing? What would it be? You don't want to be a Greek scholar today? Anybody on the phone want to unmute your microphone and take a guess? It's pretty obvious when you stop to think about it. All right, here's my hypothesizing. Unless anybody wants to unmute their mic and take a guess. What results from, ste what results from stealing is stolen property. Something stolen. Bingo. So, grammatically, the acting form is stealing. The result form is stolen property. So I don't care. You want to speculate? Make it a, re a result noun instead of an action noun? Okay. Let's do that. What does it change? Nothing. So then, we'll read it this way. He didn't regard equality with God as stolen property. He regarded it as his own rightful possession. Same thing. You could speculate till you're blue in the face. You can't change the plain meaning of God's word. Equality with the Father is the rightful possession of God the Son. There is a personal equality. He did not regard equality with the Father as stealing. Or, if you can't stand that, if it grates on you so bad, stolen property. Put that in your dictionary. Stolen property. No, it's his rightful possession. He is personally equal with God the Father. In his deity, he remains equal with God the Father even while he is here on earth. That's why we read in John chapter 5, verse 18, that he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And why did they hate him? Because they said to him, you being a man, make yourself God. 
in his deity, even on earth, he remains equal with God the Father. Now in his humanity, takes the form of a servant. And he is submissive to God the Father. But in his deity, which he never, ever gives up, he remains equal with the Father. So, with regard to the deity of Christ, this text encourages us to consider three things, dear people. Number one, trinity. Number two, majesty. Number three, equality. Trinity. That he is the supreme being, but he is not God the Father, and he's not God the Spirit. But he and God the Father, two distinct persons who are the same supreme being, love, joy, communion, delight in one another, eternal life, triune life. There is also majesty. He subsists in the form of God the Creator. He is invisible. He is invulnerable. He is celestial. He is real. He is unapproachable before he comes to earth. And he is equal in his person with the person of God the Father. There is a personal equality between God the Father and God the Son who are both persons, the one and the same supreme being. Equality with the Father is his rightful possession. And because it's his rightful possession, he didn't think that it was stealing or stolen property. Now then, so what? Finally this morning, so what? You think this has blessed and profound implications, folks? What do you think? Yes? Oh, you can't tell me, can you? <laughs> I think it does. I think it has profound implications for how we think and how we behave and how we feel. Because this is true, we should call on him. Because whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have never called on him, whoever's listening to my voice, call on the name of Jesus. He is the supreme being. And he can save you. Look unto me and be saved. For I am God. And there is none else. Trust in him. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. He has never let anyone down. He never will. Give thanks to him. What a story. With no beginning. Before the world was. It's not once upon a time. But before there ever was any space or time. God the Son was. And yet, poverty, humility, grace, love. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. Give thanks to him. Worship and serve him. He is our God. He is our virtue. He is our reason for living. And finally, know him and commune with him. Dear people, our religion is not just a set of doctrines or a moral code. It's about knowing and loving Christ, a divine person, God the Son incarnate, and through him, knowing 
and loving, the triune God, the one and only supreme being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, knowing him. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, Jesus Christ, John 17, 3. Our religion is about knowing him. It's about loving him. It's about having a personal relationship with him and through him with the triune God. May God be pleased to bless the ministry of his holy word this morning. Let's pray.